The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. Welcome back to our live stream of our sermons this morning. I just want to start by apologizing. I'm, uh, you probably were able to tell I was a little flustered in that last lesson. I'm, I was frustrated about my internet connection. It's going in and out. It's being inconsistent. It's showing that it's doing really well at one point, and then the next point it's doing terrible. Um, so you'll just have to be patient with me, and hopefully you can follow along um, fairly well throughout this. Um, it's uh, I'm not able to see exactly what you're seeing in regard to you know what actually is coming through on your feed. It'll it'll show me that I'm having trouble a little bit, but I don't know what you missed from the last sermon and what you got. Hopefully you got the majority of it because um, we're preaching a second part here, and I hope that it's beneficial to you. I hope that it's um, easy to understand. And like I said before, I just apologize for technical difficulties. There's really not much I can do about it while I'm doing this. Um, uh, I restarted my internet in between, and that's why I started a little later. And um, it's looking good as of right now, but I really don't trust it at all. So <laughs> we'll see how it goes. Um, and I hope that it's pretty consistent, at least for this second lesson. I indicated our last stream that we had some announcements to make. The men had a a, a call that we joined yesterday where we could have kind of a little men's meeting over the phone um, just to discuss the changes in regard to the guidelines given by the governor um, just recently. And he, he gave out, a, I think it was like a six-page PDF with some details and and had, had a little bit of details with regard to churches meeting after May 1st. And, and so we determined that we're going to have an assembly on May 3rd, Lord willing. And we have determined a format for the entire month of May. And as I said before, I sent out a picture of a Word document detailing that format. And if you didn't get that um, through that text message... Um, you know, let me know and I'll try to get it to you in some way or form and maybe ask around and someone can maybe give it to you so that we can know the details. But we're only going to have one assembly on Sunday. There will be no Bible classes. Um, the assembly will be at 10 in the morning and it will basically be the same length of time as it usually would be when worship starts. We're still going to have the same amount of songs. We're going to have a sermon. We're going to have announcements. We're going to have prayers. Um, It'll just be in a slightly different format. Every other row is going to be taped off so that we can be distanced a little more. That means you're probably going to have to find a different place to sit. We're going to have to get out of our comfort zone in order for this to work. And then we're going to have the Lord's Supper divided into single servings. Before you get there, you're going to grab that before you sit down. And then, you know, obviously we'll take the Lord's Supper at the the appointed time during that worship period, but we're not going to have those things passed around. Um, you're just going to grab your single serving and then we'll have the contribution ready to, um, you you can give on the way out um, in the foyer. But all of those things, like I said in detail, are, are there on that Word document. And if you need that, let me know. Um, and we'll dispense with all the great detail of that now. But then at six o'clock, we're going to have another live stream. So we'll still have two sermons, but only one of them will be um, in person in our physical assembly. The other one will be like this, and it'll be at 6 in the evening on that Sunday. 
and then Wednesday again will be the exact same as we've been doing it um, through this live stream. We will not meet on Wednesday as of right now. We're going to have the Bible class through live stream, and so tune into that. We've been doing it at 7 throughout this time. So that's our format for May. It'll take some getting used to, but let's praise God and thank Him for allowing this time to come to an end and we can start getting to a sense of normalcy or what is being called the new normal. And um, I know that this will be very, very encouraging as we get to meet um, together next Lord's Day, Lord willing, and see each other, although not uh, doing what we would normally do, shaking hands, hugging, and, and talking for long periods of time, but maintaining social distance, but being able to assemble and worship our God together. So again, if you need more details on that, um, let me know or let someone else know and we can get you those details. But just know that we will meet at 10 in the morning at the building in El Reno next Sunday, May 3rd, for an actual worship assembly and we can worship our God together once again. We began this uh, morning in the 930 um, block of our study with a study titled The Generic Jesus. And essentially all I mean by that is, is that obviously the concept of denominationalism in the world is that we can all be speaking about Jesus generally. We believe that he's the Christ, the Son of the living God. We can be coming to different conclusions about what his desire for us is in specific areas, and therefore you have the differences in the doctrines and the creeds of the denominations. Yet because we're speaking of the same Jesus, that we can all meet him and be in heaven. And we obviously, as members of the church, disagree with that, but there's been a, uh, a problem for some time now, as we quoted from an article written by Curtis Porter some years ago, and indistinctive preaching, where members of the Lord's body are preaching a generic Jesus. They're preaching a general message that someone from a denomination could hear and agree wholeheartedly to, thinking that we're on the same page. There needs to be distinctiveness. They need to understand we don't believe the same thing, and we really don't believe in the same Jesus, because the things you're saying Jesus stands for and teaches, and the things that you say Jesus is, that is not what we believe. And so if there's a difference, we're obviously not talking about the same Jesus, even if we're speaking the same name. And there needs to be distinctiveness because the fellowship of God, as we discussed, is distinctive. Eternal life is through the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God is through the knowledge of Jesus. And the knowledge of Jesus is only given to us through the revelation of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we have within the pages of God's Word. And so from Matthew to Revelation, we have the New Testament. That is the doctrine of Christ in its totality. We don't get to pick and choose what to believe, teach, and follow. We've got to follow it all. And so when we discuss that, we need to be very specific because those in the world, the denominations, they don't believe and teach it all. And they don't practice it all. And there's many contradictions. And so we need to be specific about that. So the lost know that they're lost so they can turn away from their sin and error and be saved. And so that those of our number who are members of the one and only true church of the New Testament can continue to understand that there is a distinction between them and the world so they can maintain that identity with Christ and therefore continue in a state that is right before God. 
So distinctive preaching is needed. The message must be understood, and misunderstanding is detrimental. It is fatal to the human soul. And we need to make sure that people know what is the truth and that we know what is the truth. We need to separate ourselves from the world, and that's going to happen through the distinctive preaching of God's Word and our adherence to it. I want us to consider one other thing, though, for this second part. I say one other thing, many other things, but all under this general concept of the distinctive kingdom of God, because this is where it's all going to come out. When we think about it, when we consider being children of God, being people of God, being a part of His institution, that is, His kingdom, His church, well, that's where all of this distinctiveness is really going to come out. We understand that only by following the truth, the New Testament, are we saved. And that that truth is, truth is very specific. It must be the apostolic doctrine, not the creeds of man. It must be the whole truth and nothing but the truth. We're sanctified by the truth. We must abide in his word to be free from sin. Well, all of that comes forth in a practical manner. What are we believing? What are we teaching? What are we doing? And that's all seen in the way the citizens of the kingdom live their lives and in the way the the people of a local church, as we'll note, act and what they teach and what they believe and what they do and what they practice. And it's going to become very clear as we study these things that it's different than the world. It's different than what the denominations teach. And you may not be a member of the church and you may be seeing some differences, but understand that that's not without significance. That's of great importance. If, if what you are doing is different than what the Word of God says then you're not right with God. And we want you to know that so that you can get right with God. This, again, as I began the lesson earlier, is all out of love. We want to do what God says, and we want you to know what God says in order for you to ultimately be saved, as are we. So consider the distinctive kingdom of God. I want us to note, first of all, the distinction that the kingdom is the church that belongs to Christ or the church of Christ. You see, the kingdom is important because that's where the saved are. In Colossians 1 and verse 13, the apostle Paul says that he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. In other words, if you are not a part of that kingdom, then you are still in the power of darkness if you are not a part of that kingdom, you do not have redemption through the blood of Christ. If you are not a part of that kingdom, you do not have, therefore, the forgiveness of sins. And so discussing that kingdom and what it is, of what it consists, who's a part of it, is of paramount importance. Because if you're not in that kingdom, you're not saved. But part of that distinction is this. Those in the world, and by world, again, I mean the denominations included, they will teach primarily as a whole, maybe not necessarily all of them, but a very well-believed-in doctrine that is common within the denominations is the doctrine of premillennialism. And the doctrine of premillennialism teaches that the kingdom has not yet come, that the kingdom is yet to come, that the kingdom will be established when Christ comes again. And what they will do by that is make a distinction between the church that belongs to Christ and the kingdom of Christ. And so the church that they'll speak of is not the kingdom. The kingdom is yet to come. 
But I assert to you this morning that the kingdom and the church are one and the same. And so if you think that you're a part of the church, but that church is not the kingdom, understand that those who are saved are members of the kingdom, and that's also the church. And so there's that difference, which indicates that according to the scriptures, you're not right with God. We need to make that distinction. That needs to come out in our preaching and our teaching. You know, Jesus showed that the kingdom and the church are one and the same. We looked at Matthew 16 earlier this morning. I want us to notice after Peter's confession, this is what Jesus said in verse 18. I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. But notice what he says in verse 19. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And so what he's doing is he's showing that the kingdom and the church are really just two different descriptions of the same institution. The church and kingdom, they're not the same words, but they're referring to the same institution. I will build my church. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And this kingdom is not physical. John 18 and verse 36, Jesus said to Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. You see what those in the denominations believe, and the greater part of them, is that the kingdom is not yet established. It will be established when Jesus comes again, and it will be a physical kingdom where Christ and his followers will reign for a thousand years within Palestine, in physical Israel, and that that is the kingdom. But Jesus himself, not only does he make the church and the kingdom the same, equal, but he said himself, it's not physical. It won't be on this earth. It's not from here. There's not going to be a physical battle of Armageddon like premillennialism teaches. But the battle is spiritual and Jesus has already overcome. It's just a matter of us deciding what side we're on. You see, Jesus says the church and the kingdom are the same. And that's of paramount importance because only those who are saved are those who are a part of the kingdom. The kingdom has absolutely been established. Consider the words of Jesus in Mark 9 and verse 1 when he said to some people, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. And so unless there's 2,000-year-old people walking around on the face of the earth waiting for the kingdom to be established, then the kingdom was established within the generation Jesus spoke to. There are those who will not taste death. Jesus was speaking to then uh, until the kingdom is present. But he also said it's present with power. Consider Acts 1 and verse 5 where Jesus told the disciples, the apostles, that truly John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Then they asked the question, Lord, at this time will you restore the kingdom to Israel? He says it's not for you to know those times. But notice verse 8, verse 8 of Acts 1. He says, you shall receive power. And he had just given them the promise of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And we noted in verse 3, that that will happen not many days from now. And what we conclude from that, from Mark 9 and Acts 1, is that not many days from the words of Jesus in Acts 1, that power comes with the Holy Spirit, and that's when the kingdom is established. And in Acts 2 and verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they, the apostles, were all with one accord in one place. Verse 4, and when they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, they began to speak with tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And Peter told the people there what that was in verse 16, that that's what was spoken of by the prophet Joel that shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my flesh or my spirit on all flesh. The Holy Spirit had come. The power is the miraculous tongue speaking that they were engaged in. And Jesus said when that power comes with the Holy Spirit is when the kingdom is established. 
This is all happening in the first century. And that's when he takes his throne as king. In verse 33, Peter, Peter continued his sermon, Therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. For David did not save himself. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus sat on his throne and was sitting on his throne in Acts chapter 2. But notice verse 47. The Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. The church and the kingdom are the same institution. And that's not yet to come. It has already come. The church of the saved is the kingdom of prophecy. I want us to notice one more distinctive thing about that. That there's only one. You see, denominationalism says there's many different churches, but they're all headed up in the vine who is Christ. But what the Bible teaches is that the kingdom is the church and the church is but one. In Ephesians 1.22, it says that God put all things under Jesus' feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. It's important to see verse 23, though. It calls the church his body. And in chapter 4 of Ephesians, in verse 4, it says there is one body, which means there is only one church. Consider back in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 when Jesus said, I will build my church. That's singular. That's the inspiration of Scripture. The Holy Spirit's trying to tell us something. The Holy Spirit's being distinct, not general. The Holy Spirit is saying Christ will build his church, singular. He's not going to build churches. He's going to build church, singular. Denominationalism is simply unscriptural. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 10 through 13 is the closest thing we see to denominationalism in the New Testament, where they were not speaking the same things. And Paul says, I urge you to be not divided, but to be joined together in the same mind and same judgment, because there are those of Chloe's household who have reported to me that you say, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ. He says, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? He's saying, you can't say, I am of this, I am of that. That's essentially hyphenated Christianity. And Paul right there is saying, that's not what God's will is. Christ is not divided. And that's exactly what denominationalism is. We're all of Christ, but you know, here's the Baptists, and the Baptists aren't the Methodists, and the Methodists aren't the Baptists, and neither one of them are the Presbyterians, and none of them are the Catholics, but all of that is being in Christ. Christ is saying that's not the case. Paul is, rather, by inspiration. Christ is not divided, and we need to be distinct about that. If you think you are in Christ, and you're a member of a denomination, and you think that a member of a, separate, of a separate, of a different denomination, speaking different things is also of Christ, and we're all in this together, what the Bible is telling us here is that you're not right with God. And we need to be distinctive about that. We're not all the same. We need to be the same. That's what Paul is calling for. But we can only be the same as we appeal to the one standard and become members of the one church, which is the kingdom, the distinctive kingdom of God. And consider how that happens. The Bible speaks of the entrance in specificity and in distinction. And, and it's very clear on who is part of that kingdom and how we become part of that kingdom. Notice back after Jesus looked at Peter's confession and, and praised him and the apostles for that and, and gave them some information. He will build his church in verse 19. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What are the keys? The keys obviously have reference to terms of entrance, but also obviously reference to authority. And notice 
what the second part of that verse says. Whatever you, he's speaking to the apostles, not all of us, but the apostles. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. The Greek actually speaks of a future event in the passive sense. And this is what the New American Standard Bible renders verse 19 as. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. He's saying that you don't get to dictate what are the terms of entrance into this kingdom. I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom, Jesus says to Peter and the rest of the apostles, so they get to to say who gets into the kingdom and how they get into the kingdom and what are the the parameters and the laws of the kingdom. How must we live and who are the saved? They get to tell people that. God is appointing them to that in this. That's how what Jesus means when he says, I'll give you the keys. But what he's not saying is that you get to dictate what are those terms of entrance. What you're going to be speaking will already have been bound in heaven and it'll already have been loosed in heaven. He's saying, I am telling you what to say and you're going to say it. And so the citizenship, its entrance is through the apostolic doctrine as we've already established within our first lesson. If you are not adhering to everything in the New Testament, then you are not a part of that church, that kingdom, and therefore you are not a part of the saved. So what are the terms of entrance? How do you become a citizen of that kingdom? And what this will do as we are distinctive with this is it will not include, it will exclude. The only people it will include are those people who have done what the message says. And I want us to consider firstly that entrance into the kingdom, becoming a citizen, first requires hearing the gospel message. In 1 Timothy 1 and verse 11, Paul talks about his gospel, the glorious gospel, which was committed to his his trust. In Romans 1 and verse 16, he speaks of that gospel. It is the gospel of Christ, and it is the power of God to salvation. For everyone who believes, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as is written, the just shall live by faith. In the gospel is revealed God's plan of us becoming righteous before him, and it is by faith in Christ. But that must first be heard. In other words, you cannot be saved without knowing the truth. Romans 10 and verse 13 says, Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. But notice what he says after that. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 21, Paul writes that, It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. In other words, if you've never heard the gospel message, you cannot possibly be saved. But it must be that true gospel message, not another gospel, Paul mentions in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another if it's a gospel, he goes on to say, that differs from what was originally delivered by the apostles, then it is not the true gospel, and hearing that gospel, which is not another, cannot save. But you know, we also must believe that gospel message in order to enter that kingdom. In verse 17 of Romans 10, he says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's why it was necessary to first hear, because the faith that is necessary for salvation only comes through the hearing of that gospel of Christ preached through the apostles by inspiration of the Spirit. And Hebrews 11 and verse 6 
The Hebrew writer says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And that is why in Romans 1 and verse 16, Paul did not just say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone or for everyone who believes. In other words, the power of God to salvation is not something that is universally applied. And there are some in the denominations who believe in this concept of universal salvation. Not everyone will be saved. Paul says only those who believe in the gospel will be saved. In chapter 10 and verse 9, he's specific about what they must believe. In verse 9, he says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, to righteousness, into righteousness. And with a mouth confession is made unto or into salvation. You've got to believe that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. What Romans chapter 1 and verse 4 indicates is that that resurrection declared that he is the Son of God with power of the Spirit of holiness from the resurrection of the dead. You can't just believe that Jesus was a good man or that he was a prophet from God. You've got to believe that he is the Son of God to be saved. That's what you've got to believe. But I want us to understand something furthermore about this belief. This belief was not a belief that was without action. In James 2 and verse 24, James says, You see then a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Why? Verse 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. In Romans, just before verse 16, where Paul says the gospel of Christ saves those who believe, he described what that belief was in verse 5. He says, Through him, we, that is the apostles, have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among the nations for his name. Other translations say obedience of faith. In other words, in saving faith inheres obeying the message that is believed. And if you believe that you can be saved by faith alone without, without obedience to the standard, then you're not saved. And we need to be distinct about that. The Bible does not say that one is saved at the point of faith, but when faith obeys. You see, there's a problem within the Lord's body where there are lessons and there are sermons and there are discussions on salvation by faith. And that without the distinction of what kind of faith the Bible is talking about. An obedient faith. When the world, the denominations believe that salvation by faith is at the point of assent to the facts. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God and as soon as I believe that I'm saved. Without having to do anything about it. But the Bible says you're saved by faith when that faith obeys. You know something else is required by the New Testament to enter that kingdom it requires repentance of sin or repentance from sin. That word repent is simply a change of mind, but it's a change of mind about sin, about something that leads to a change in behavior, and that's something that is commanded. Acts 17 and verse 30, the Apostle Paul said, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. When the church was established, as we alluded to in Acts chapter 2, the first gospel sermon included repentance. Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. And this is in parallel to chapter 3 in Acts, 
where the Apostle Peter, again, on a separate occasion, we don't know how long afterward, but it was afterward, was preaching the same message and said the same thing just in slightly different language when he said, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. And so without repentance from sin, that person is therefore still in sin and cannot be saved. If they are unwilling to change their mind and therefore their action about the sins that they're convicted of, then God will not save them. In Romans 6 and verse 1, the Apostle Paul kind of gives us the reason for it, where he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And in verse 16, he says, You're a slave of sin if you're continuing in sin. We need to understand that, yes, Christ calls us as we are. He calls us as a sinner. We can't do anything about our sin without him calling us, so he calls us as we are. But he does not call us to remain as we are. He demands change. And those people who say that we're saved apart from anything we do, which would logically conclude with we can continue in our sin, that grace may abound, are preaching a false doctrine, and they are not saved. You must repent of your sins. But then the gospel continues that in order to be a citizen of this kingdom, you must confess that faith that you have produced by the gospel. You must confess that faith in Christ. This is not a belief that is in the dark, but is out in the open. In Matthew 10 and verse 32, Jesus said, Whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. If one is not willing to confess that faith in Christ, one is not going to be saved. Again, in Romans 10 and verse 9, the confession is that the Lord Jesus has been raised from the dead, and therefore Romans 1 and verse 4, He is indeed the Son of God. You must believe in the deity of Christ. Remember in Acts the 8th chapter when Philip was preaching to the Ethiopian eunuch? In Acts 8 and verse 36, They came down the road, saw some water, and Philip said, or the eunuch said, See, here is water, what hinders me from being baptized. Notice what Philip said. If you believe with all your heart, you may. And this is what the eunuch said. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That was very specific. A confession of Jesus as a good man or a prophet is not enough. You must confess belief that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But then it doesn't stop there because we asserted before that you're not saved at the point of faith. You're saved when that faith becomes obedient, the obedience of faith is what the apostles were ministering toward in the gospel. What is required is baptism. You notice that in Acts chapter 8, after the eunuch said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. Baptism is essential to salvation. Back in Acts 2 and verse 38, Peter didn't just say repent. He said repent and be baptized. And it says in verse 41, those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And in verse 47, it specifies the Lord added to the church those who are being saved. And so to be added to the church, as we alluded before, is to be added to the kingdom, is to be added to the saved. And you do that by being baptized according to the gospel. And someone will say, well, that means you're earning your salvation. But I want us to understand that the faith that saves is a faith that obeys. And the faith that saves is a faith in God's ability to raise Jesus from the dead and therefore God's ability to raise us from being dead in sin to being alive in Christ. And that is evidently by the gospel occurring in baptism. Colossians 2 and verse 12 says that you're buried with him in baptism 
and which are raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. We see that in Romans 6 and verses 3 through 4. Understand this. Let's be distinct with what we're saying. We are not saying that the baptism of the denominations is the same as the baptism of the New Testament. Because the baptism in the New Testament is in order to be saved. Not a baptism which occurs after one was already saved. They will say that baptism is an outward sign of an inward grace. And that's just not true. Baptism, according to the scriptures, saves. 1 Peter 3.21 says there is an antitype which now saves us. Baptism. If you were not baptized in order to be saved, but your baptism was because you were already saved at the point of your belief in Christ, then you are not saved. And you need to know that. But also the Bible requires faithfulness. Those citizens are not setting their mind on the things of the earth as the enemies of the cross of Christ did in Philippians 3, but their citizenship is in heaven and they eagerly wait for that. And therefore, as Paul says, they stand fast in the Lord because they know they can lose their salvation. Hebrews 3 and verse 12 says one can depart from the living God. Hebrews 12 and verse 15 warns that one can fall short of the grace of God. In 1 Corinthians 8 and verse 11, Paul mentions that a brother for whom Christ died can be caused to stumble and therefore perish. How is that the case? Because we can lose our salvation. In 2 Timothy 2 and verses 11 through 13, Paul writes, If we died with him, we shall also live with him. But if we endure, we shall also reign with him. we got to endure. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. And so this doctrine prevalent within the denominational world of once saved, always saved, if you believe that, you're lost. Because that's not from the gospel. That's error. And therefore, to believe it and to live by it is to be lost. I want us to consider some other things. Obviously, in brevity, we can't go into great detail, but we want to make the distinction between the lost and the saved. Consider the organization of this kingdom. The only head is Christ. God gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body. And therefore, we must do all things, whatever you do in word or deed, Colossians 3.17, do all in the name of the Lord. That is, if we do not have authority for it, we are not to do it. But the head of the church is not the Pope. The head of the church is Christ. Consider another thing about the organization of this church and understand that it is organized on a local level. There is certainly a universal sense, but the only universal organization that is all the saved is that Christ is head over the one church. But it's quite obvious in scripture that there are many churches, but that's only a division of locality. They're a member of the same universal body. In Romans 16 and verse 16, it speaks of the churches of Christ. And so those local churches are still under the headship of the one Christ. They're all to believe the same thing and all follow the one head who is Christ. It's just that they're divided in locality and therefore they are self-governed, not doing what they wish, but all have the responsibility to do what the head requires. In 1 Peter 1 and verse or 5 and verse 2, Peter writes, shepherd the flock of God which is among you. And so those churches are autonomous. They're not working in a coalition. They're separate, but they all have the responsibility to work under the headship of Christ. And this is by divine wisdom because what this does is it prevents widespread total apostasy. Where the Baptist church can decide this is our creed now and you've got to follow it. 
or the Pope can say this is truth and you've got to follow it, then therefore there is a widespread apostasy. But what Jesus says is that you've all got to be obedient to me. But if one church decides to preach and teach something false, this other church doesn't have to. And we consider a text like Revelation 2 and 3 with the seven churches in Asia, where five of those churches are condemned as being in sin and they need to repent. And two, Smyrna and Philadelphia are not in that group of those who are in sin. Thanks be to God for this design. Within those local churches, here is the organization. Philippians 1 and verse 1, the Apostle Paul addressed the church in Philippi. He said to all the saints in Christ who are Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and the deacons. That word bishops is just another word for overseers and it has reference to the office of elders and those who are deacons who serve under the elders. I want us to notice though that elders is always in the plural. And so those who claim to be pastors within the denomination, according to the scriptures, those are not in adherence to the pattern of the New Testament. Patterns within the New Testament illustrate that the pastors are one and the same as the elders, and they're always in a plurality. And they're not the heads of that church, but they're in submission to the chief shepherd, and they have the authority to enforce the word of God. In 1 Peter 1 and verse Chapter 5 and verse 1, it speaks of elders, plural, shepherding the God among them, singular, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples of the flock. And they have to answer to the chief shepherd, verse 4. In 1 Timothy 5 and verse 17, it does speak that they do have a rule or authority. And deacons are those who are servants. That's what the word means, but it's in an official sense. And Artin Gingrich's definition of diakonos says, one who gets something done at the behest of a superior. And we might refer to Acts chapter 6 with regard to those being called to serve tables, not in the official sense as deacons, as that had not yet been established yet, but that's essentially what the deacons did. They served in a physical way, in a physical work, so that the elders could serve in that spiritual capacity. And of course, there's a spiritual component to that, but that's the, that's the organization of the Lord's church, elders and deacons. And then there are the members, who as we see in chapter 5 of 1 Peter and verse 5, are to submit to the elders. And all of these members, they are part of the one body and therefore individually members of one another, and they use the gifts that they have, whether it be an ability to teach, an ability to serve, an ability to help in some way, they use what they can that God has given them to edify the body of Christ. And then there are the evangelists of a local congregation. This is part of the gifts we alluded to earlier in the lesson, where in Ephesians 4 and verse 11, Jesus left some, and of that number are evangelists for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. But these people only preach the word of God in season and out of season, 2 Timothy 4 and verse 2. Notice the distinctiveness between the Lord's Church and the New Testament, which we are a part of, and that of the denominational world. The Catholic system is obviously wrong and unscriptural, but the denominational system is wrong as well. There is no board that decides what the church believes. There's no convention which we appeal to. This pastoral concept of the denominational world where there's one pastor and he is the authority in that church. It's his church and we are of his flock. That is not scriptural. We need to understand the distinctiveness. If you are a part of a church that fits those systems, then you are not a part of the Lord's church because this is the organization of the Lord's church. 
and consider something else. The work of this church is very distinctive. I want us to notice in the scripture, there are only three things that are described as the work of this kingdom or the work of this church. Firstly, we'll note evangelism. In Matthew 28 and verses 18 through 20, after stating his authority, Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. The church is given the command and the responsibility to evangelize, make disciples of the nations. In Acts 8 and verse 4, they were scattered about preaching the word. That is the church who was persecuted. This is why we're to have an answer always ready. 1 Peter 3, 15 Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. The church is given to the work of saving the lost, evangelizing with the gospel. But secondly, the church is given to edification. This is part of its work. In 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 26, the Apostle Paul says, How is it then, brethren, when you come together, each of you has a psalm, teaching, tongue, a revelation, and an interpretation? Let all things be done for edification. Now, they were misusing those gifts, which is the content of 1 Corinthians 14. But I want us to notice that they come together for edification. And that edification is done decently and in order. We alluded to Ephesians chapter 4 and verses 11 through 16 before, how these gifts were given for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That edifying is coming to a unity of the faith, that is the gospel, to a knowledge of the Son of God, that is what... How, how God is revealed and how we come into a relationship with him that is speaking the truth in love. Verse 15, the edification is done through the teaching of the word of God. Those two are parts of the work of the church and the only other work the church is given to according to the New Testament is the benevolence for needy saints. Not those outside of the church, but for needy saints. This is what the collection was for in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 1, the collection for the saints this was so that they would send that gift to Jerusalem where there were needy saints. Romans 15 and verse 26 speaks of this. It pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. And so this benevolence was not for those out in the world for a social concept, but it was for the needy saints, members of the church. We need to recognize above all else that the work of the church within the New Testament was a spiritual work, as was the work of its head, Christ. In Luke 19 and verse 10, he says, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save the lost. That is the work of the church, spiritual. Benevolence comes the closest to any physical component, but as we read 2 Corinthians 8 through 9, we understand the spiritual validity to this idea of benevolence to needy saints and to giving as we've been prospered. And so the work of the church we need to be distinct about. It's not social. It's not to repair marriages. It's not to have a daycare for kids. It's not to entertain. It's not a concert. There's not light shows and instruments. It's not for physical nourishment. So we don't have meals as a church sponsored by the treasury of the church. And it's certainly not political. It's not a political platform to, to uphold a political figure. And if the church you're a part of is involved in anything like that, that's of a social and physical nature, then you're not a part of the one true church of the New Testament. You know, following that in, really a part of the edification of the church, but also in our service to the Lord, there is a distinctive nature of the worship of that church. And we need to understand that. In John 4 and verse 24, Jesus said, 
that God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So those two components are distinctive. Spirit is that they must do it with sincerity. Their hearts need to be involved. And so this empty worship of going through the form is not pleasing to God. We need to have our, our souls, our spirits in it. But in Colossians 3 and verse 17, whatever we do must be do, done in the name of the Lord. That's the truth component. And 2 Timothy 1 verse 13, Paul said, hold fast the pattern of sound words. And in Hebrews 8 and verse 5, the copy and shadow of the heavenly things were made according to the pattern and we're to make all things according to the pattern as well. This is not according to the traditions of men. We see that in Matthew 15 and verse 8 where Jesus condemned the Pharisees. These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. In other words, if you cannot find what you practice in the New Testament, then it's from men, and it is not pleasing to God. Our worship must be ordered in spirit and in truth, and the worship of the New Testament is as follows. The worship of the one church of the Lord involved singing, in Ephesians 5 and verse 19, we're given the command to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Colossians 3.16 likewise said, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, doing the same thing, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. I want us to note that singing is specified. And I would challenge you to try to find any time in the New Testament where the music aspect of worship is, in, is mentioned. And never in the New Testament will you be able to find a command example or necessary inference that had the accompaniment in the singing of mechanical instruments. Never was it specified, but what God specified is singing to the exclusion of all other things. And so mechanical instruments are not authorized, but also he says psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, the word of Christ dwelling in us richly. So if you cannot find what the song teaches in the word of God, then that's not pleasing to God. But also choirs would not be authorized because we're to speak to one another and that's every member included, not the choir singing to us. You see, it's distinctive. If we just say that the one true church sings in worship, well, the denominations with that alone may be led to believe that, well, we're a part of that same thing. We're talking about the same thing. No, we're not. We're not talking about mechanical instruments being involved. That's unauthorized. We're not talking about choirs. We're not talking about solo artists. We're talking about the entire church singing songs that are seated and grounded in God's word and we're doing it only with our voices making melody in our hearts. That is the worship of the New Testament and there is no other thing that is mentioned about that uh, music. It is always singing. But also the New Testament church is given to praying. In Acts 2 and verse 42, they continued steadfastly in prayer, and that prayer was with understanding in 1 Corinthians 14, 15. You know, they were also those who partook of the Lord's Supper. In Acts 20, and or in Acts 2 and verse 42, it says they continued steadfastly in the breaking of bread, which is a reference to the Lord's Supper. But notice in Acts 20 and verse 7, it says that on the first day of the week, the disciples came together to break bread. What that necessarily infers or implies, and we infer, because there is always a first day of the week with every week, is that these disciples regularly gathered every first day of the week to observe the Lord's Supper. They didn't do it once a month. They didn't do it quarterly. They didn't do it during the Easter holiday season, which, by the way, is not authorized by God either. The New Testament speaks nothing about a special time of observance of, of the Lord's resurrection in a 
concept of Easter. It speaks of every first day of the week, observing the Lord's Supper, remembering his death, and proclaiming that until he comes. And that's what the first century church did. They also gave of their means. We looked at 1 Corinthians 16, 1-2, which orders the collection to lay by and store as we may prosper. This was also every first day of the week. If you've prospered, you bring your gift. But I want us to understand that the amount is not specified. In 2 Corinthians 9, it speaks about giving liberally and cheerfully, but the amount is not specified. But someone in the denominations will say, we're supposed to tithe, and that means 10% of what your income is. But that's an Old Testament doctrine. And what we read in the New Testament is that the Old Testament is nailed to the cross. It's not our authority anymore. And what the New Testament says about the giving and worship is not to give 10%, but to give as you've been prospered, to give liberally and cheerfully. Tithing is not authorized under the New Testament. And if your church teaches and preaches tithing and you believe that, you're not a member of the one church of the New Testament. And lastly, Preaching was done. The disciples came together to break bread, but Paul, ready to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. In verse 26 and 27, this kind of gives us some insight into what Paul preached. When to the Ephesian elders, he said, I testify to you this day, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. Why? For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Everything in the New Testament needs to be taught on. That is, you can't leave anything out. Someone will say, well, we just got to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's all we have to believe. God doesn't care about how we worship him. God doesn't care about how we're organized. But Paul says, I declare to you the whole counsel of God, everything in the New Testament, all that is the inspiration of God, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture. And that's what thoroughly equips a man for every good work. And so this preaching was not a motivational speech. It was not storytelling time. But it was a proclamation of God's word. And all of this comes under this understanding that it was not about entertainment. The New Testament worship, the worship of the Lord's church, is not about entertainment. It's not about observing something and watching something. But it's about participation in spirit and in truth. And it's not about socializing. It doesn't involve social activities. But it's a spiritual thing before the Lord. And if the church you're a part of is not that way then you're not a part of the New Testament church. And we would do you a disservice if we're not distinct about that. As we draw our lesson to a close, I want us to consider one more thing, an implication from all of this, that there is a fate for those who are foreigners to this one true church and kingdom that we just saw in the description of the New Testament. If you're not a part of that, you're a foreigner. But what does that mean? Are you telling me you may, might ask that I'm not saved if I'm not a part of that one true church. That's exactly what we're saying. And we need to be distinct about that. It's not that you can't be a part of that church. It's just that you may not be at this time. And we would be doing a disservice to you, like I said, if we didn't show you in the scriptures that fact. Only those who are members of this one kingdom can be saved. In Ephesians 2 and verse 19 the Apostle Paul encouraged that they were no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God, which implies that before they were a part of that church and entered that church like we talked about before, by hearing the gospel, believing the gospel, confessing faith in Christ, repenting of sins and being baptized into Christ, then they weren't a part of that. But since they had done those things, they were no longer foreigners, but fellow members. 
They were added to the church by being saved. But all of this indicates that before, as they were foreigners, they were not saved. In Ephesians chapter 2, in the very early part of that particular scripture, it speaks of them as being subject to the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. And they were not saved before they were members of that one true church, that one kingdom. Consider what we began our lesson with earlier. In Colossians 1 and verse 13, Paul says that he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. If you are not a part of the kingdom, the one church that we just described, very quickly, but specifically, if that's not the description of the kingdom, the church you're a part of, then you are not saved. Your sins have not been washed in the blood of Christ. You don't have the hope of heaven. But you can if you become a part of that kingdom. Those who are foreigners to this kingdom are subject to eternal destruction. I put on the board 1 Thessalonians. This scripture is in 2 Thessalonians, however. I apologize for that. 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 8 says that when Jesus comes, he will come in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. We need to avoid being generic in our discussion of Jesus and his word. Because in being generic in our discussion of Jesus and his word, we lead others to believe, who are not a member of the church, that they are speaking the same thing we're speaking on. And we're all on the same page. And we're all saved. We're all going different ways, but we're all going to the same place. But that is contrary to what the scripture says. Remember what Peter said? You are the Christ, the Son of the God, the living God. He was very specific. Jesus is not generic. He's specific. And therefore, he's exclusive. And only those who are a part of him and his body are a part of the saved. It may be that you're not a part of that church, that kingdom. And therefore, you're not saved. What we want to do is encourage you to search the scriptures to find what that church is, to find how to be a part of that church. And if we can assist you in doing that, we offer that invitation to you to study, to, to talk about these things, come to an understanding of God's word, understanding that only if you follow his word will you be saved. And while we're apart in this time, we know that things are different. But let me encourage you to ask those questions and to seek truth. And if we can assist you in that, let us know. And if there's anyone listening to this that has not obeyed the gospel by being baptized into Christ for the remission of their sins, know that you are not saved. But if you want to be saved and you want to obey the gospel, let us know. We will assist you in doing so if that needs be the case. In any way, though, we encourage you to search out the scripture to find out if you really do believe in the Jesus of the New Testament or if you believe in this Jesus that is completely foreign to what the New Testament speaks of. I hope that this lesson was a benefit to you, and I hope that the connection was not too bad, that you were able to follow along. And, of course, we're looking forward to being able to meet Lord Willing on May 3rd. Keep your ears open for that. If nothing changes between now and then, we'll be able to see each other in person at 10 o'clock on May 3rd. I can't wait for that time. 
I hope this lesson was beneficial to you, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks for your attention.